Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to a podcast for the Society for the History of Children and Youth. And I am Dr. Sarah Glassford coming to you from Windsor, Ontario. I'm the archivist in Letty Library at the University of Windsor. And I am mildly known, I guess, for studying the Canadian Red Cross. And I've also worked on two books about women in war with Amy Shaw, who is with me today. Hi, um, I'm Amy Shaw. I teach. Uh, at the University of Lethbridge in southern Alberta in the Department of History and my research interests tend to center on war and society particularly in terms of how they intersect with ideas about gender and citizenship. Um, I've done work on conscientious objectors to military conscription in the First World War. I've got a couple different projects going on about um, how Canadians understood the Boer War right now. Um, and I really like collaborating with Sarah. Um, we did a collection called uh, Sisterhood of Suffering and Service. Um, Sarah, can you show them? I don't have mine. Look, isn't it pretty? Um, all about uh, women and girls of Canada and Newfoundland during the First World War. And that process worked really well and it brought forward some uh, fascinating themes and insights that we wanted to carry forward. Um, and so it was only natural that we collaborate again on the sequel to that, if academic books have sequels, um, making the best of it. <laughs> the book that we're going to talk about today. Um, and actually, we have just begun talking about another collection. So stay tuned. Exciting. Yes. <laughs> Yay. All right. So we're here today to talk about this book, Making the Best of It, uh, Women and Girls of Canada and Newfoundland during the Second World War. Um, and along with your two intrepid editors, it's got 12 uh, very fine contributors, including one of your intrepid editors, not me. Um, and uh, there's gathered into four sections and contextualized and grounded by an introduction and a conclusion. There's photos and a, um, a bibliography of suggested further reading. So there's, there's something for everyone. Making the Best of It gathers together work examining some of the ways that women and girls responded to the Second World War and how their lives were altered by it. It pays special attention to the various communities that they created in terms of things like age and ethnicity and religion and language. And it's really attentive to women and girls' own voices as they describe and reflect on their experiences. Studies of women in the Second World War have tended to be quite concerned with deciding whether the war was good for women or not, 
whether it advanced a wider participation in the world or not. In this collection, Sarah and I have thought about that a little, but mostly we wanted to bring new research questions and analytical approaches to the fore and thinking about girlhood as a distinct subset of women's lives, um, a time of its own concerns and actions and constraints was an important part of that. Um, maybe you want to talk about that a little, Sarah, um, why it was important to us to have children, in this case specifically girls, included. Absolutely. Um, so it was something that came out of the World War One Women in War collection that we did very early on when we were talking about a call for papers, um, you know, and sort of imagining what the parameters of the collection might be. Um, I had done some work in children's history. A number of my good friends and colleagues had, were working in children's history, um, people like Tara Brookfield and Christine Alexander here in Canada. Um, and so it was just kind of on my mind, and I thought it was a really fun area of history. I think that's common for a lot of of historians of children and youth there's just fun stuff that you end up uh, researching and thinking about and so i thought well why don't we kind of expand our parameters to include women and girls explicitly and if we say girls in the call for papers then maybe we will get some essays about children uh, and that is what happened um, so since we had done that for the first book it seemed very natural that we would do it for the second but of course when you're thinking about you know framing the whole collection drawing it together in an introduction and conclusion you do have to think about well beyond the fact that it's fun <laughs> Why, why are they here in, in sort of more of a conceptual sense? Um, and in that respect, you know, there are some really good reasons to include children in a book that's mostly about women. Um, you know, the connection between motherhood and childhood and parenting, you know, there are natural um, points of connection there. And one of the essays in the Second World War book does actually look specifically at women's rights and children's um, sort of what children deserve as as a, a major element of discussions during the war about uh, daycare and daycare provision. So that kind of naturally flowed out of that. But specifically, I think when we're talking about war and, and our title for this book, Making the Best of It, um, really feeds into this concept. Um, anytime we're talking about war, the idea that people make history but not in conditions of their own choosing is naturally a theme and that's so applicable as we all know to children you know there's been lots of debates uh, and discussions in recent years in among children's historians about the concept of agency and if that's the right word or the right concept or you know how do we talk about what children are or are not able to do and how that changes you know depending on their actual chronological age or what their society allows them to do but it's just sort of a natural fit to nest that discussion around childhood um, and making history not in conditions of your own making within a larger discussion of wartime and everybody in a society making history in conditions not of their own choosing um, so that was one one big aspect but of course there are lots of other elements the use of of young people as really potent symbols in wartime as well as in peacetime but especially in wartime you know danger and safety and preservation of the home and the nation um, concerns for children's safety or development um, there's a big uh, juvenile delinquency panic in Canada during the Second World War that that filters into some of the discussions about women um, as well and uh, just thinking about age 
of course, we know is a very fruitful category of analysis and sort of inserting that into a wartime context. It just felt like, I think anyway, it felt like a natural fit um, the first time and therefore even more so the second time. Mm -hmm. um, I might as well just since our less listeners may not be familiar with it i'm gonna actually read from the book here just to mention who our, our four authors were who wrote chapters specifically about children so as amy i think mentioned uh, one entire section of our four-part book is about women children and the war it's the first part we wanted to kick it off with the fun stuff um, so we have four great contributors um, who who gave us really wonderful chapters so it starts with barbara lawrence and her chapter is called The Small Spaces of Childhood, Learning How to Feel in Atlantic Canada, 1939 to 45. And that one's based in um, the maritime cities of St. John, New Brunswick and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Second is Claire Halstead's chapter, Fostering Friendships, Canadian Girlhood and the Evac Evacuation of British Children to Canada about the British war guests who came uh, within a, a sort of imperial or commonwealth network of friendship. Third is Lisa Pasoli's chapter, Casualties of War, Children, Mothers, and Wartime Day Nurseries. And I mentioned that one uh, just a few minutes ago. And then fourth, Lisa Moore, Civic Identities in Conflict, Montreal's Anglophone and Francophone Private School Girls. And that one has a really interesting look at French-speaking uh, girls and English-speaking girls in Canada's French-speaking province of Quebec. Um, and it's a point of contention during the Second World War um, between French speaking and English speaking Canadians, whether Canada should be in this war at all, what it should be doing in the war, how much the government can or should expect of its citizens in wartime. So there's a much larger tension going on in the country um, between French speaking and English speaking Canadians. And so she brings that right down to the school level and looks at how girls in these different um, linguistic groups uh, were sort of being told about the war and how they were acting and, and reacting in response to that. Yeah. So I think that kind of feeds naturally maybe into, Amy, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about some of the big themes, because this was another book where we just issued a call for papers and saw what we got and, you know, tried to make sense of it from that. Um, but I did find, uh, I don't know if you did, but I found by the end of, of kind of pulling it all together, there were a number of prevailing themes that came through the chapters and I think we then tried to um, kind of draw those out a little bit in the introduction and conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I think there there really were and it was really, at least for me, quite, uh, quite interesting to see the different connections in different ways. Um, I think in terms of thinking about children in war and in terms of some of the, the themes of the book in general, the history of emotions is often a big part of this. This is a, a methodological tool that runs through several chapters in the book and I think has kind of particular resonance for thinking about children. Um, Barbara Lorenzowski uses oral history interviews to chart what she calls the emotional texture of wartime memories and the emotional geographies of childhood and youth. Um, and um, I think that's really quite fascinating to look at and think about. Um, in Claire Halstead's chapter two, um, she finds emotion to be an important frame for understanding children's experiences. So this is the chapter looking at the evacuation of uh, British girls to Canada and the friendships that formed between them and their Canadian hosts. 
Um, I think another theme is, um, you know, ideas about power and agency. Um, Lisa Moore is looking at girlhood in wartime and trying to understand how young people in Quebec reacted to the war and how language and religion might have shaped that. Um, and we see sort of ideas about um, children don't tend to have a lot of power in wartime. Their experience of the war is mediated by authority figures. And we see that in, in several chapters, but I'm thinking of it particularly in terms of um, how the people in schools, the teachers, the principals tried to shape the experience of the war for children. <laughs> and um, uh, we, we see that. And I think that's uh, really interesting, these sort of efforts to shape and control not just what children do, but also what they know and don't know and how they feel. And some of this is connected to efforts to protect them. And some of it is, you know, tied to other ideas about patriotism and stuff. Um, so power is important. Um, geography is important. Place is important. That comes up in um, different uh, Barbara Lorenzowski's uh, section looking at people's lives in the port cities, um, children's lives. Children have a smaller sphere that they move around in. Home is maybe more important to them uh, than in some other areas. And sort of thinking about that is something that comes up uh, in different ways. <laughs> and we also see children's resistance to um, some of these efforts to mediate what they do. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm just throwing all these ideas out. <laughs> well, can I can I comment? Can you I should. say yeah, anything? Because yeah, because otherwise I'll just be like, and there's this and this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I feel I it's kind of come up already, but another mm -hmm. one that I think of for the book that that I think we were already thinking about a little bit in the larger like women and girls sense was community, mm -hmm. um, and that just you know, whether you're in or out of a given community seem to, to be really important. And through the larger book, because of course we want everyone to read the whole book, not just the mm -hmm. part about kids, um, was, you know, different um, religious minority groups. We have Mennonite women who go overseas. We have uh, Jewish Canadians, uh, particularly in Montreal. That's the focus of one chapter. We have uh, middle-class women. We have more working-class people. Like there's all sorts of, you know, linguistic and religious and class and, you know, all of these sort of different groupings of people on top of the two around which we framed our book, which are gender and age. And well, and I guess also a bit of place since we have Canada and Newfoundland and for listeners not in Canada, or who just don't know their Canadian history very well. Newfoundland was a separate country. It's now a province of Canada, but until 1949, it was a separate country. Um, so we already had sort of three big uh, groupings of people, and then we add all these other ones in, uh, in terms of what our contributors were looking at. And so the idea of community or of identity and belonging and not belonging and, and the inclusions and exclusions support and kind of oppression that can come out of what, what groups you're in or not in um, throughout the war years really emerged to me anyway as one of the defining themes of thinking about Canadian women during the Second World War, um, which I think is is maybe a contribution that we have made. And, and it also, as I'm as I'm speaking, I'm thinking it, it does apply as well to girls um, in the different chapters that that we look at. Um, you know, the, it filters down to that level as well. Um, but that is something new, I think, that we've brought to 
the study of Canadian women in wartime, Canadian girls in wartime, that was always present in, you know, in the primary documents and, and the events and stuff, but that we hadn't really been talking about as a field. So I hope that that's something that people will take and run with. Um, it makes it a more complicated story. And I think we deal with that a little bit in the conclusion, you know, it, it, it sort of erases our ability to say, this is what it was like to be a woman or a girl in Canada in World War II. Instead, we're saying, well, it's fractured so many different ways, you know, it's like a, a prism shooting off all these different experiences in so many different directions. Um, but that is what it was like, you know, it really did depend um, what communities you were part of, what identities you held. Um, which, you know, is true, I think, today, right, in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in Canada and elsewhere. But back to your earlier themes, the emotions one was a surprise to me when we got the, the contributions and we're looking at those. And I'm a little bit biased because my own chapter in the book deals heavily in, in the history mm -hmm. of emotions and emotions in history. Um, but it's one of my favorite things that I've ever written. And um, I really enjoyed that theme throughout the book. I think because it's part of like the idea of emotions and emotions experienced by people in the past, whether they're adults or children, is one of the ways that I personally co connect to the past, like the idea that you can kind of, you know, I feel grief, I feel loss, I feel fear, or, you know, whatever it is. And these people also felt those things, you know, and, and there's all kinds of history of emotions work on, you know, did it mean the same thing to be sad in the 18th century as it does now, you know, and maybe it did or maybe it didn't, but I have that sense as a 21st century person that I can connect to people in the past on the level of common human emotions. Um, and I was just looking through the essays on children earlier today um, preparing for this conversation and I was I got a lump in my throat as I was reading one of the oral history um, quotations in in Barbara's chapter um, about uh, a, a woman who in her senior years was recalling her childhood in one of the two port cities and just how she hadn't really connected with the possibility that some of the young men, some of the family members that she knew who had enlisted could actually die until somebody from her street, you know, they got the telegram and, and all the mothers and children up and down the street were sort of spreading the word that so-and-so wasn't going to be coming home. And just the way that this woman recounted it, you know, many, many years later, um, something about hearing that person say it you know I just I felt that sadness or that sense of like this is what war is and it comes home to all of us in different ways uh, depending on our age or where we live or what we're experiencing but there is that common connection point through emotions so sorry that was a bit of a tangent but <laughs> I, I found those really resonant themes I think you mentioned that word but but those sorts of the community piece and the emotions piece really resonated for me as a reader of our book you know in addition to being an editor of it mm -hmm. yes yeah no I think that's that's really good and really important when you were talking about community one of the things I was thinking about was how um I don't know, we had children have kind of a different frame of reference for this war than adults do because adults have the first world war to think about and remember and for children, this is where they are and they don't have anything else. And well, what they have is the depression, the Great Depression is what they sort of came from and came into. Um, 
Um, and um, one of the sources that we use in our book, I think the one that we open with, um, actually is talking about how the poverty of the depression means separating away from people and groups and stuff that she didn't grow up with, I don't know, sports or summer camps or um, many people even had to leave school in order to work in the depression. So that that experience just before the war was really solitary. And so when they went into the war, often what really stood out for them was like communities and friendships and things like that, that they that they gained from it. And that was part of why for many of the people we studied, they had kind of a positive memory of the war in spite of, you know, all the, the worry and the deprivation and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's interesting too that just one of the other things that we deal with um, in both the introduction and conclusion is the fact that there are a lot more at least for Canada, I think it would be different maybe for Britain or for the United States, but in Canada, there are a lot more memoirs and oral histories and these sorts of things, um, you know, firsthand accounts from mm -hmm people who would have been children or young women during the war, um, you know, now, and, and there is kind of a, there's a lag, you know, it's not like they suddenly, you know, 60 year old women finished knitting for the Red Cross and immediately sat down to churn a, a memoir of their volunteer work, you know, it's not that, um, but compared to the First World War, there just are so many more things written by female people <laughs> about the Second World War, so it gives you so much more to work with, but because there was that kind of lag, you know, during the, the suburban bliss years, so-called, you know, after the war, um, people aren't thinking about it or talking about it for the most part, and so it's kind of later as people get to their retirement or just they're reflecting or their own daughters are getting involved with feminism or, you know, kind of casting a new light, women's history arising and, and looking back for feminist forebears or pioneers or, hey, there's this other time when women wore pants and went to work in large numbers, you know, um, that kind of got the historiographical conversation about the women in the Second World War going, at least in Canada. Um, you know, I think it's then that we start to see this larger output of people writing about their war experiences as women, but that time gap means it, it is people who were younger during the war. So we have, in some ways, like a fairly extraordinary access to children's memories of wartime or young women, you know, because it was young women, maybe not children, but young, young adults um, who were enlisting in the armed forces, who were going overseas with the Red Cross Corps that I wrote about, um, you know, who were signing up for um, the different work, you know, farmerettes and, and work parties out to harvest things and, you know, staying in these almost summer camp like conditions um, that you were mentioning. And anyway, I just I thought of that when you mentioned um, the sort of the the depression separation versus the wartime coming together. Uh, you know, I think it's it's mm -hmm. significant probably that we have more firsthand accounts from people who were younger mm -hmm. during the war years because they hadn't had that experience. So for them, it was much more heightened, this coming mm -hmm. together and the, the sense of community and bonding and whatever. Um, and, and I think it's also fairly extraordinary that, um, and you have a great personal anecdote with your grandmother in the Wrens about this, but that these bonds that were forged in wartime could have been so fleeting and in many cases I think were certainly in my chapter there are lots of romantic liaisons that were fairly short-lived um, but at the same time there are these you know associations of of maybe not women veterans but women who are part of different war-related groups and sometimes uh, actual veterans um, who keep 
their connections for like 70 years after the war. You know, it was a long war, longish war by modern standards, but it wasn't that long. And, you know, the, the sort of reunions and alumni gatherings and newsletters and social groups and all these sorts of things just persist and persist. And my Red Cross uh, gals stopped meeting in, I think, 2005, <laughs> which, you know, I was already studying history at university yeah. by then, you know, I'd, I'm a little little bit too late to actually meet most of them. But, um, you know, it's it's quite extraordinary that they kept those bonds going. And so why don't you tell the story about your your grandmother? I just think it's so okay. lovely. <laughs> um, my grandmother was Millie, uh, was in the Navy in the Second World War. And um, uh, they call themselves the Wrens, uh, even though that's, I think, officially what the British Navy is. Mm -hmm. But it sounds better than trying to work out an acronym with C yeah <laughs> um uh so and this was as sarah said really important to her after the war socially that this was something that she kept going to and going to Ren's reunion and, um, and I hadn't quite realized the solidity of that until her funeral. She died when she was, I think, 96. Um, and there was this woman at the funeral and we didn't know her, which was a bit odd considering. Um, so we asked and she said that she was there from the Wrens um, and that they had made this, this sort of one last commitment to each other, that they would always be a Wren at the funeral of another Wren. Um, and I found that. Um, it does get me a little teary sometimes. Yeah. I think that's such a um, such a wonderful sort of sense of duty and connection uh, to mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The, I mean, you know, forged in fire kind of uh, yes. bonds yeah. that were yeah. that were created. Yeah, it's it's quite lovely. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if we've exhausted the themes, but we could maybe think about I think just because I think it's kind of connected. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about what we were trying to do with this book and whether we think it accomplished that or not. <laughs> well, a little critical self-reflection here. I guess it's been, mm -hmm. been in print for a little over two years now. It came out early, early in the pandemic, like March 2020, I think. I just remember I when my university, our communications person, the library, wanted to do a little write-up for our university daily news. Uh, it's me standing on my porch <laughs> holding <laughs> a book and just being like, this is kind of weird, you know, long before we all got used to seeing each other's homes and, you know, working from home. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a pandemic book in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so uh, one of the things that I remember as kind of a, uh, related to the genesis of this project anyway, was just that you and I really enjoyed working together on the <laughs> World War One book. <laughs> so while we were doing that, before that book even had come out into print, we're like, maybe we should do this again sometime. You know, it would be natural if we did a book yeah. on the Second World War. And um, the first one was fairly well received, I thought, and and just the structure worked, and and it wasn't too long before people started saying, you know, at conferences and whatever, like, just I'm really glad that you did that book. Uh, when are you going to do another one <laughs> about the Second World War? So you know what the people want, the people get. I guess, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and and really, the First World War book was was if you remember, was me wishing that a book on Canadian women in the First World War existed when I was writing my dissertation about the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. And so it became one of those like, well, 
if no one else has done it, maybe, you know, I should do yeah. it. And yeah. I wanted help and there you were willing to help. And so, you know, I think because it went well and it was well received um, and there was interest in another one, it felt natural, you know, uh, it, it is a sequel in some ways. Um, and and really the fact that there's only 20 years between the two wars, mm -hmm. a lot of women were involved in both. There are so many parallels in terms of who's aligned on which side of the the actual war and um you know the second one kind of growing out of some of the problems created by the first war a lot of the same charitable organizations doing a lot of the same things um so it feels like a part two of the same story and that kind of geopolitical or you know big scale sense um but at the same time there's so much that's different you know a lot happened in the 20s and 30s including we should mention that the idea of like teenagers kind of yeah. became a thing <laughs> there are more young people you know uh still existing as young people uh in that period and you know staying in school longer and and despite the the lack of a revolution in women's rights after the first world war there were changes you know so it's it was interesting to me to kind of revisit a similar context and see how the country had changed how girls experiences had changed how women's experiences had changed um you know or the or the ways in which they were similar um so that's kind of for me i think that's part of where this was coming from uh i don't know what you remember about the origins or the genesis of this um yeah no that i think sort of covers it for me um i was thinking a little bit about you know what we wanted to sort of put in and and some of the challenges of that because there's so many possible angles for trying to look at wartime experiences and it's kind of inevitable that some things are going to be left out and so we had to think about um, what gets included and what doesn't and obviously a lot of that was shaped simply by who was working on what and decided to share their work with us mm -hmm. um, uh, so there are sort of absences here we would have loved to have maybe more stuff we don't really have much specifically indigenous mm -hmm. uh, it might be nice to have more uh, on quebec and things like that mm -hmm. um but to cover everything it would be sort of an impossibly large book too and this is something i think we envision as something of a starting point too mm -hmm. or not a starting point there is scholarship on this but it's mm -hmm. going to be built upon for certain mm -hmm. yeah 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 i mean you know there's i think in the introduction we, you know we did our best to sort of mention lots of newfoundland stuff because we only got one contribution about newfoundland because there just weren't other people you know studying newfoundland women in world war ii so we tried to bring that in uh you know we talk in the introduction when we can about existing work about the japanese canadian internment about black women working in factories you know but again there weren't people at that time actively studying in those areas doing new work that we could kind of draw on so uh, i know we tried to bring it in where we could you know what exists but um my I guess my other big, big piece of what I hoped that we would do with this book, and you mentioned it not so much as a starting point, but like a here's a boost of energy to, you know, yeah, propel the yeah. field further forward, you know, give it another big kind of shove from behind the swing set. Um, it, I don't think that's a good metaphor, but you know, you get you get the <laughs> idea. <laughs> Rocket fuel. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, um, but was was the idea of revisiting really the core 
central to this day um, historiographical contribution, which is Ruth Roche, Ruth Roche Pearson's, Pearson's, I can't pronounce that, um, book, There's Still Women After All, uh, mm -hmm. Canadian Womanhood in the Second World War, uh, which really has just, it, it set the parameters of the conversation. It got the conversation going. She was the first person to publish women's history in the Canadian Historical Association's journal and, you know, just was, was a pioneer in so many respects. Um, my undergrads that I taught were, you know, that was the book I told them to go look at if they wanted to look at women in World War II, because although there were lots of other things published, around the question of women in World War II, it, it was still the book. Um, and yet there, there was a growing sense that like, you know, well, it did come out in what, 1986-ish? In, yeah. in the mid eighties, like people have done lots of interesting things since then and look at history a little bit differently, especially mm -hmm. women's history. Um, you know, let's go back to that conversation that Ruth started and, and see, are there new questions that we should be asking? Like we're still asking her question or, or trying to address her question. So what else could we be um, mm -hmm. asking? So for me, it was that sense of like just throwing the doors open a little wider. Um, and not that I wanna wanna boot her out of the conversation. I think she'll always be an important part of it, her her work and her arguments about um the war looking like it was liberating women and yet not really having that effect. I don't know if that's a fair way to boil it down, but from in yeah. my head, that's kind of what it what it um, boils down to. So if we kind of remove the question of whether the war was good for Canadian women or not, what else is there to see? Um, so I think that's one of the things that we spelled out very clearly, you know, you always have to frame your project, frame your book in the introduction, what you're doing, stake out your territory and what you're not doing. And one of the things we explicitly said was we are not requiring our authors to deal with the question of whether the war was good for or liberated or transformed uh, Canadian women and girls um, as such. Some of them do touch on that. Uh, and I think that's, that's wonderful if it worked for their particular piece. Um, so I, I hope that one of the lasting contributions of the book will be that all of our contributors contributed new questions and maybe have taken the field in a whole bunch of new directions. I was thinking a little bit when we're talking about sort of what we're trying to do and things. Yeah. It's kind of the, the process of uh, writing the book was really quite interesting in some ways because we've got this um, collection looking at what women did and what girls did during the war and some of the struggles they faced while many of our contributors are women and we are women and um, uh, some of this is, is mirrored to some extent where well, we've had I think three babies were born <laughs> during um, the writing and, and sort of production of this book and there were various times when people were like I'm sorry that my chapter is delayed but there have been these issues with childcare, or there have been you know these issues with just sort of relationships and work and uh, things in my life. And I think that that's sort of an interesting thing to think about sort of yeah. as scholars and um, subject yeah. matter, yeah. I think you had at least one broken bone, <laughs> a limb perhaps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, I went back to school, got another university mm -hmm. degree, changed professions entirely <laughs> while we were doing this. Um, yeah, I know there were family illnesses and, and just the drama all over the place. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, so it was really, it, it was, I, not that we were looking for all of those challenges <laughs> when we started I, we could all have done without them i'm sure um but that to me is is one of the signs that a collective endeavor like this is a positive i was going to say a force for good i don't know if it's a force for good but that it's a positive experience or that it's it's working to the good um for those who are part of it that we were able to collectively overcome all of those things and mm -hmm. it this book didn't take any longer than the previous one i think it actually mm -hmm. like was a, a year less <laughs> in the making maybe because we knew what we were doing more yeah. um but you know that that we were able to kind of collectively get each other through all of that and um that's one of the things that i enjoy about editing a collection like this i know it's work that some people just would rather mm -hmm. walk barefoot across hot lava that have to be part of an edited collection but i really enjoy it um and and one of the other things that i enjoyed about editing this collection was that our contributors came from uh, many different stages and places in the kind of academic life cycle uh, we had a couple of senior scholars and we had at least one active grad student i think one or two who sort of finished uh, their phds or you know were very recent um grad students you know junior career people mid-career people um and you know it's nice to be able to work with some of the the newer folks i i remember one email i don't remember who it was from but one email that was like i've never published anything like this before what does it mean when you get feedback like x or how am i supposed to handle this or you know what's kind of the next step and and being able to work with people through that process uh is really enjoyable to me i don't know if it just feels like the the best part of academic life it doesn't always go this way i know but where you can be supportive and and collaborative and and work together and you know collegial i guess um mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that was neat, but it, it also raises the issue, which one of the book reviews, I think by Jane Nicholas, that uh, was, was done of the book mentioned, which is that a lot of our contributors were experiencing academic precarity, myself included, <laughs> as one of the editors. Um, because I was academically precarious for a long time, I had to go back to school, retrain and get a different career. Um, and I've ended up in a university setting, but it, it didn't necessarily mean it was going to go that way. Um, and, you know, so on the one hand, I think it's really fantastic that we were able to work with people who were not in stable cushy you know um traditional academic positions and get their work out into the world and you know help it have an impact uh you know that's really wonderful but at the same time as i think jane mentioned in her review it's a little bit troubling to think that you know half of our contributor list could be lost to scholarship mm -hmm. after that you know just who knows um where all of our individual trajectories will go so that's uh, you know i don't know that that's gender specific um you know in this case but certainly um you know it's part of that background or backdrop i guess to the creation of this entity that is our book um that you don't see in the actual content but it was very much a part of the creation mm -hmm. of the work yeah hmm. that's good um 
I think we're kind of reaching a natural maybe moving yeah. toward the conclusion of our conversation, although, of course, we could talk forever about uh, about this book. Um, but I wanted to before we wrap up officially, I wanted to read a dramatic reading, no, just one, <laughs> one sentence. Uh, and it's actually the last sentence in the conclusion, just because I feel like it, it summarizes really well what the spirit of the book is, or the spirit of kind of our, uh, it's another running theme, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But also, I think it applies specifically to the kids that we talk about in the book. Um, and just in terms of sort of framing, how, how might we understand the experiences of children and young people in wartime? So from making the best of it, last page of the conclusion. The women and girls of Canada and Newfoundland did not want war in 1939 and certainly did not expect it to improve their lives. But in frequently unsung instances of resilience, ingenuity and determination, whenever and wherever they could, they made the best of it. And I just, it's a nice sentence. <laughs> it's a good mm -hmm. ending sentence for a book, if we do say so ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it you know, isn't that kind of the core of childhood? Again, you know, making mm -hmm. history, but not in conditions of your own making. Um, that this is what we have. We right. have a second world war. <laughs> um, so, you know, let's make the best of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's the ending for things. Yeah. And yeah, we could talk about this for ages, Sarah. <laughs> forever but we will leave it there and um thank you all for your attention thanks to uh the society for the history of childhood and youth for giving us the opportunity to talk about this um yes thanks very much thanks always a pleasure to talk to you amy across the country through across technology the country, yes <laughs>